A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 113 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. All of our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com, right under the second Airborne Division tab. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman, and with me like the trapped spirit of Karkness Myrrh, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey everybody, that's right, he's kind of hinted at it, we are finally to what we've been building up to for a while now. Yeah, it's taken a while, a slow progression, but we have actually gotten here. Uh, I'm, I'm actually excited because this is something we've talked about doing for a long time, and getting there is kind of uh, relieving, you know? I, mean, I was beginning to think we were never going to get there. We were talking about this, what, back in April of last year? <laughs> it's taken quite a while. Speaking of taking a while, one of the other things we've had going on, of course, since back at the beginning of the year, uh, with our 100th episode and whatnot, is this whole contest thing. We've given away some Star Wars novels, uh, some original works of mine that have been signed, and that sort of thing. And as of the last episode, we didn't have a chance to announce any new winners because of the time that we were recording things and whatnot. So we have two winners, the last two, to announce in this episode. Uh, and yes, in the near future, possibly next episode, we'll start talking about uh, the thing you can do to get those signed cards in case you've got a copy of Equals and Opposites and such, and you want to slip something signed in there with it. In this case, we had a contest going for the second signed copy of my novel Greater Good that we're giving away, and the second Equals and Opposites comic pack that we were giving away. That's the one with my comic from Star Wars Tales 21 with the Kyle Katarn and Yuzhan Vong action figures with it. Uh, in the case of the copy of Greater Good, that has been won by Dwayne Stockton. So congratulations, Dwayne. And in the case of the comic pack, won by Dominic or Dom Nardi. So congratulations to both of you, and uh, those should be coming to you very soon. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we plunge into John Jackson Miller's Knights of the Old Republic, issues 25 through 28, covering the first leg of the 12-part Vector crossover event. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. You know what? Uh, I think it bears noting here what they claim they were trying to do with this series. Because part of our coverage here is to see whether or not they fulfilled the promise of what Vector was supposed to be for each of the series involved. We're looking, of course, at Knights of the Old Republic this time. We will look at a combination of Dark Times and Rebellion, since those are only two issues each next time, and then take a look at Legacy the time after that. So we wind up with basically four issues out of the twelve 
per episode here as we're uh, going issue to issue at least. But this is what in the letters page of Knights of the Old Republic issue 25 they said they were trying to do. They start out saying, uh, before we get to your letters, it's probably appropriate for us to make mention of the fact that this is the first issue of Vector, a 12-issue crossover whose story will eventually encompass all of our current Star Wars series and spend about 4,000 years of the Star Wars timeline. And I guess it would help here to clarify for them that while this was their four main ongoing Star Wars comic series, there were actually some other Star Wars comic series at the time that did not get pulled into this. I think they were ones that were delayed originally. This story has been over a year in the planning with writers John Jackson Miller, John Ostrander, Rob Williams, and Mick Harrison, a.k.a. Randy Stradley we know now, artists Jan Dersima and Doug Wheatley, and editors Randy Stradley, Jeremy Barlow, and myself all contributing. Myself, in this case, being Dave Marshall. As it's now coming together, we feel we've managed to attain all of the goals we set for ourselves with the crossover. Ah, big talk, big talk. And he has uh, three checkboxed goals here before talking about heading into the other issues, which we don't need to deal with because we'll see those as we go along. But it's three checkboxes, all of which are marked as checked. First one, make the events in the crossover mean something to the characters in each of the four series. That's the Old Republic, Dark Times, Rebellion, and Legacy. Vector must change the course of every series it touches. Two, the series must be reader-friendly. The events in Vector must be easily accessible to both new and long-time readers. And the final one, readers must not feel that they are forced to purchase issues of series they wouldn't normally read in order to follow the story of the crossover. Every chapter of Vector must work as a standalone story within the series in which it takes place. That, I think, does a good job of defining this whole concept of how they call it a crossover, but they later sort of redefined it, referring to it as a cross-through. The idea is there is an item and a character and a concept that cross through these four series, but you're not going to necessarily see the main characters of the four series connecting with each other, which is usually what we mean when we think of a crossover in terms of comics. For this one, um, it's an interesting one. You know, it gives us the origin of a disease, of a creature that we wind up seeing in the Knights of the Old Republic video game series, so it's kind of cool to see that connection. It does start slowly but surely propelling us towards the next couple of arcs as we're getting towards Vindication, which is the big climactic arc of the first half or so of Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, I mean, it's one of those stories that in and of itself sometimes feels a little clunky every now and then. But from the standpoint of what it does, I think this one probably is one that actually fulfills that promise, which is nice. Uh, the downside to this, and I'm sure we will talk about this either separately or as we go along, um, is the art. Um, the art in this, and I know there are some people out there going, oh my god, they're talking about art again. It's a comic book. It is art mixed with writing. You have to have both to get a comic book, and both add to the perception. My story equals an opposite, we mentioned with the comic pack, would have been nothing without James Reyes's awesome artwork. In this case, uh, the artist is Scott Hepburn. And Scott Hepburn uh, isn't somebody who's drawn a lot for Star Wars. And in fact, it was while doing Star Wars that he actually had his first chance to ink his own penciled artwork um, in one of the later arcs within the Clone Wars. But he was a guy that they brought in to do some of the interior art for the Clone Wars comic series. That is the one that is uh, tied into and based on the Clone Wars cartoon series, the recent one, the Dave Filoni one. Okay? So he did uh, the first, fourth, fifth, and sixth issues of Slaves of the Republic 
and then did all three issues of In Service of the Republic, the one that takes place on that frozen planet and all. And I've always thought of him, when it comes to those series, or those uh, story arcs, as being someone who kind of looked at the Clone Wars and how stylized the Clone Wars cartoon already is. You know, Dooku's got the nutcracker chin. Um, most of the characters move a little stiff, at least to begin with, uh, and so on. I look at that as sort of a very stylized kind of animation, and he took it, and his approach was basically, what if I was watching the cartoon while on LSD? Because he takes the clean lines of the show, because he keeps the same basic shapes as the show, but doesn't in sort of a, you know, I'm, I've got jagged edges now type of approach. The, the lines feel less controlled than they are with the animation itself. Uh, made for some oddities. And yes, this does mean this is one of the artists who gave us dominatrix wearing duct tape slave Ahsoka that thankfully they changed when they took the uh, Slaves of the Republic arc and turned it into an arc of the Clone Wars television series. Um, but at least with Clone Wars as wiggity-whack, to use a phrase a buddy of mine used to use in high school, <laughs> as wiggity-whack as the art was, it was just an over-stylized version of an already stylized look from the Clone Wars. Here, it really doesn't work. These wind up being, uh, without a doubt, the lowest point in art for Knights of the Old Republic. And I won't say it's the lowest point in Star Wars comic art, but it's getting there. Because there are points at which you're like, what am I looking at? Um, they will show this awesome iconic image, or what should be an awesome iconic image, of Vader and Luke and Zane and Cade in a vision. And Luke has this teeny tiny head and an enormous body with hugely broad shoulders and looks like the lady who's been traveling around Sochi and the rest of Russia covering things for NBC during the Winter Olympics. Um, Cade looks like a much younger version with slightly bushier hair version of B. Arthur when you look at the way his face is drawn. <laughs> um, it just, it, the art doesn't tend to work. Uh, Zane, has this incredible... First off, he looks very effeminate. Uh, when we meet the constable who shows up again here from the previous arc, at first, she looks like she could be Zane, just smacked a lot with an ugly stick because her facial expressions make her look like she's supposed to be a zombie of some kind. We get Zane. Zane looks very effeminate most of the time, and if nothing else, if he's not meant to look like an anime-style woman with a very pointy chin, then at the very least, he is the love child of Jay Leno. Then you've got... Celeste Morn, this new character being developed uh. here, the one that's going to carry on, and most of the time she looks like either she just had some type of wisdom tooth surgery or something because her <laughs> the, her jowls are freaking huge, or she is supposed to be a monkey. She looks more ape-like and simian-like than Griff does. It is ridiculous, ridiculous artwork to use for such an important arc. Um it has that unrestrained sense, which I guess is supposed to give us that sense of, of frenetic action throughout this arc. And instead, it is constantly, constantly detracting from what we are seeing. Um, it may work and still make you go... In the Clone Wars, it absolutely did not work here. Thankfully, the storytelling is there to really propel us along. But usually I could say with Knights of the Old Republic that at least the storytelling was strong enough that it overcame the artwork. I'm not sure that's the case here. I actually feel as though if the storyline under normal circumstances with other art may have wound up getting 100% of its of its oomph in here, it's at like 70, 80% compared to what it could or should have been 
thanks to the way that this artwork affects the rest of it. So uh, it does change things here, probably more than at least two of the others, if not all of the others. And it is an interesting take on the way to connect all these things together, as this has to lay the groundwork for it. But wow, did they miss the mark when they chose Scott Hepburn to do the art for these four. And, and it's just such a, a ever-changing look. I mean, there, there's a scene right away where uh, Celeste Morn first shows up to the constable and she's fighting the Rackles and she's like, get down! That scene, she looks great. You know, I, I love the look of the character, everything. But yeah, the way her face does that, as you said, looks like she just had tooth surgery. Uh, yeah, the jaw is constantly shifting and morphing and made it so difficult. This was by far one of the biggest offenders of the bait and switch. Yeah, so you've got Dustin Weaver and you've got Travis Cheris doing the covers of these, and the covers look great. You know, you're like, oh, hey, this looks really cool. And then you get in and you see those same scenes and you're like, wow, this is very cartoony. Now, if you can get past that little bit, it's not so bad, but for me, this was probably the worst offender for me. I I, I was drawn out by that face, the monkey look of, of Celeste Morn, and it was a character that easily, as we see in the other series, could be v- drawn in a way that, that you could enjoy and like, but I felt like the way they did it just really detracted from the character. It was like, this is this is her first foray into the Star Wars galaxy, and, and that's how they do it. It, it kind of threw off the like of the character. But maybe that was intentional. I mean, because as the story progresses, you're not quite sure what you're going to get from her. Is she good? Is she bad? Is she going to be good, corrupted to bad? I don't know. But the aspect of how the rat ghouls and, and that plague and the, the Karkness myrrh or the Karnas Mer talisman, the way all of that plays together in the Rackles and stuff tying into KOTOR, I think that was probably one of the coolest, I don't know, homages or, or sleight of hands or whatever you want to call it. But it was really cool. It had the zombie feel, and yet at the same time it had the evil Sith witchcraft, and you find out that the actual there was a reason behind the plague, that it wasn't just some plague that happened. Oh, I, I thought the background behind that was just brilliant. Uh, the way it moves Zane Carrick's character through the progression of the story works well. Uh, I think I think for him and Cade especially, they're the ones that really, you know, the, the the promise was fulfilled. You know, the events of this really was a changing moment for their characters and really set them off on a new vector. Uh, not so much for the other ones as we get to those, but this one especially really did a good job for setting up Zane for stuff that we're going to see coming down that was really, really exciting. So I liked seeing that. You also get to see uh, how Zane is still, you know, he's got that heart of gold. Uh, when when the bombing of Jebel happens and stuff, he's like, no, not again, you know, things like this. Uh, I just, I, I like that aspect of it, but the art is the biggest detractor. Once you get past that, it's not so bad. I mean, it, it, it polymorphs. I mean, there are moments where scenes are really, really good, and then you get to others where it's just so exaggerated that it's really hard to just, like, you literally go from one page to the next, and it goes from, like, I don't know. Like he said, the anime style, the 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 magna kind of style, where you're like, what? the character just looked normal a second ago. What are we doing here? But you get to the Mandalorians and stuff. I love the look of the Mandalorians. I love the look of all the ships and stuff like that. It's just the characters where things really kind of go wacky for me. So in that side of things, you know, if you could swallow that, you're okay. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate. In our moment of triumph, I think you overestimate their chances. Consider that your spoiler warnings, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. 
So that gets us into the spoiler territory, of course, and we pick up with issue 25, which actually begins with a vision. And this is a vision in which there are these armies of rat ghouls, and if you're not familiar with them, they're essentially these, like, mindless beast creatures out of the KOTOR games uh, that someone can turn into, but which was always referred to as the rat ghoul plague. Uh, they will eventually explain how that all fits in with the story of Vector and whatnot. But you have this army of rat ghouls and uh, a city in flames and such, and standing above it all is this guy that we don't know yet, but he is this ancient Sith Lord, as in uh, from way, 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 way back. Uh, like the original Sith, the ones that eventually leave and become the Dark Lords of the Sith, coming as Dark Jedi and ruling the Sith and such. Uh, lots of background on him given in Book of Sith. A uh, guy named Karnas Mir. And standing beside him is some unknown Darksider, hence the red lightsaber. And this is Quinilla, one of the Covenant having this vision. I just want to ask you real quick, did you notice the little tell in that vision of the second person? Check out the belt. Which is the belt of... Celeste Morn. Is it? Yeah. When you, as you read through it, the, the belt is the same belt. I, I thought that was an interesting little twist. That's the oh, only yes, identifying mark. I was like, oh my gosh, that's slick. <laughs> it, I, I didn't recognize her because though we see the chin, it doesn't look like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there um, is that. Uh, but she, the, she asked the question in the vision, you know, is, this now, is this happening now or in the future? And Zane is there saying it's happening now, and that it's Vader, and now. And what I think is supposed to be Luke, and now. And Cade, and now too, makes it more difficult, don't it? And it's this, what's supposed to be this great iconic image of the four, and it's used a lot to promote this, but it's not nearly as, uh, as clear, of course, as the cover image that we get with this series for this particular issue. But as she snaps out of this vision, we find that the Covenant is worried about this. Um... The Covenant doesn't quite know what is happening here, but she's able to recognize that it would appear, or I guess Zamar is able to recognize uh, as sharing that vision, that the, the item that Karnas Mirror was wearing was the Mirror Talisman. And the Mirror Talisman is this ancient Sith artifact that was created uh, that, I mean, again, more background shows up in Book of Sith, but it's essentially going to be the MacGuffin for this entire series. It is this item that needs to be either controlled or destroyed in order to uh, carry out or prevent what's going to wind up happening throughout here, the, the, the threat of that apocalypse, right? The cover even says, the end of the galaxy as you know it. Yeah, not so much, but if this goes unrestrained, then yeah. And they open up this, this interesting concept here that they are going to send some of the Jedi Covenant's shadows, as they call them, shadow agents, to go and try to retrieve the mirror talisman that they have been hunting for. Uh, and they choose to send Celeste Morn. She is one of these shadows. Uh, essentially someone who works for the Covenant, who either is or was a Jedi, but someone who the regular Jedi Order does not consider one of their members, or an agent of the Jedi Order in general. As he says, when you go hunting, send a hunter. And it, it just adds another level, I think, of depth to the Covenant in that not only is it just that handful of people, those handful of seers plus Lucian and his mama, you've also got this idea that they themselves, uh, yes, they manipulate events themselves, but there is sort of a, a miniature army, a special forces, if you will, that they have access to beyond some of the stuff that we have already seen in this series. I mean, we're, we're setting this issue up 
as we've just lost Ranatay from the Covenant dying, uh, who has given Zane the name of Lady Krinda. And as we go along, this is the arc that starts to finally give us a little more detail, a little more detail, a little more detail, until we really get a sense of the Covenant's true activities by the time we get to the end of Vindication. Well, I like how when they talk about the shadows, you know, the one the one guy with the head trails goes, your shadows. And then, of course, you know, Dre, who has also got the uh, morphing nose, like it looks like he's got a broken nose now, which I could get around. But he's like one of my mother's ideas, actually. Unlike the so-called shadows the Order used in its meager attempts to track the Sith in her time, my agents are shadows indeed. Their identities erased, literally, from the Jedi Order's roles, so they might give their whole effort in service to our mission. And, you know, there's a cool moment there because it's got this big panel. It's got all these different people's faces. And in one of those is Celeste Morn. I mean, I, I like the little touches they're doing here, the little nuances as it's going on. That's kind of cool. It, it's, it is building things up. That brings us into actually meeting Celeste Morn, uh, something that I, I think is supposed to be a more impactful scene because we've met the constable in the previous arcs. But we find the constable from Terrace being chased by Rat Ghouls, and eventually being found by Celeste, who saves her, only that she's been bitten. So she has to become a Rat Ghoul herself, and it's one of those sort of zombie-type moments where it's, you know, I'm not going to kill you before you change, but as soon as you change, now I'm going to kill you. Uh, Celeste winds up having to kill the Rat Ghoulized Constable, which, again, I'm sure is supposed to be an, a, a dark moment, but first, when we see the Constable, she looks like Zane, so it takes a moment to figure out who she is, um, there is that connection, thankfully, back to the previous arcs with that, and of course when she goes, and turns, um, into a rake ghoul, they do it in a way that makes her look like this should be something on a Muppet show, as far as the, the tension of the moment. It just, it feels much more cartoony and goofy than it does dark, and it seems like there's, there's a, a, a missed opportunity there. But that's when we get the, the, uh, Keystone Cops, goofy, bumbling Zane and Griff. Um, and I get the idea that if this is supposed to be a story that is meant to be a starting off point for some who may not ever have read KOTOR before so they can read it and still understand it, that they really have to emphasize the, the goofy relationship uh, and the banter between Zane and Griff and Griff's extreme greed issues uh, and Zane as someone who's sort of always being pulled around for the ride by whatever scheme Griff is coming up with. But they really, really overdo the slapsticky, cartoony nature of those two to the point where it becomes somewhat ridiculous. They basically find Celeste. They're immediately freaking out. Um, they're they're having trouble just letting each other go as they're as they're stumbling around together. Um, and basically, just you know, they're they're talking about, hey, you know, here's uh, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're here. Griff, of course, tries to make yet another point about, you know, we've got to make money. Uh, two whole panels talking about how they've got to make money. Um, she gets annoyed, tries to walk away. Except with her being a Jedi, presumably, they figure that she may be their one way out. So they're essentially just following her no matter where she's going until she finally learns his name. Um, very, very quickly realizes that he's way too bumbling to even remotely be someone who could have carried out the assassinations that he's been accused of. And she reveals herself to be Celeste Morn being on a mission of some kind. Uh, to try to essentially, uh, in her case, get the mirror talisman, but she hasn't exactly, you know, cleared that up with them. They just know that she is on a mission. 
And granted, them being in these underground tunnels wind up leading them to seeing the Mandalorians going after the Mirror Talisman as well, because they're in the area underneath the surface where there's a lot of blasting going on, so it makes sense for them to stumble across the Mandalorians. But to me, this sequence, while it does introduce Zane to Celeste, Griff to Celeste, uh, and sort of very quickly set up the situation that they're still stuck after the events of the previous arc, and now they've bumped into Celeste, and this is their way of being drawn into the Vector story, to me it felt way too... Looney Tunes compared to what Miller usually does with the banter between the characters. Maybe it's just the fact that the artwork makes it look and feel a little more cartoony, but it really did not feel like it had the level of funny yet serious that Miller usually does. Yeah, the art has to be the one that that kind of pulls the seriousness aside. Because I, I, if you've played KOTOR and you've read the comics up to this point, I think it works. The cartooniness kind of detracts a little from it, but I think if you're walking into this completely new, the art really sets a tone that you may not want to continue with. And I, I think that that kind of is kind of tragic. Uh, you know, when the constable scene happens, I liked it. I thought it worked. Um, you know, there wasn't much of the cartooniness going on with Celeste at that moment. Uh, there's a part where, uh, you know, there is no cure. You can kind of see her jaw starting to do what it'll do later. Um, but I don't know. I liked I liked Celeste's character, the look of, of her armor, the way she had her hair and stuff. I liked that they had a strong character in that regard. I wanted to know more. And seeing her do the, you know, waiting until the constable changed kind of was, I don't know, kind of like a moral side of the Jedi that I was kind of expecting to see. So it was nice to see that these Jedi shadows, at least this one, still was kind of following under that, which plays later into her story in the Vector. Uh, but when Griff and Zane show up, I liked it. I, I love the fact that, you know, the first thing you see Griff doing is, you know, he's running through. Zane's chasing him going, Griff, hold up. And Celeste's so like, now what? And you just see Griff just booking it. Gangway! And he runs straight for a door. The door, the door, the door won't open. The door won't open. And that's when Zane grabs him from behind. He's like, that's because it's a wall, Griff. I don't know. To me, I I just, I love that little bit. And I, I think you're right, though, in the aspect of they, they put it on real thick to kind of get that casual reader to kind of get up to speed. Um, so, so there's that trade-off. Like, you know, I mean, you want to bring in these casual readers. You want to make it accessible to them. But at the same time, you don't want to dumb it down to the point where, you know, the longtime fans or the people that have been reading this, you know, for the first 24 issues are kind of like, oh, wow, we've kind of really taken a step backwards. Like, kind of how you were feeling. But I don't know. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, there's moments where, you know, Zane's like, Griff, let, let go. Your claws hurt, you know, and. Uh, well, we were asked to leave the outcast village, and then, of course, Celeste is like, wait, you were kicked out by the outcast? And Zane looks down at Griff. Somebody left the gate open so the rat ghouls could get in. <laughs> I don't know. To me, it's classic banter of these two, and it's what I've known to see or come to expect from seeing from the earlier stuff, you know, like with them when they were on Flashpoint and so forth. Uh, but, you know, I like the fact that, like, you have this look of a refugee on Griff now. He's got that bandana over his head and stuff. It looks like they've been staying here for a while. Uh, I don't know exactly how much time has passed since when we saw it before, but you get the sense that there has been at least a week or two maybe that have gone down. Uh, so it's cool. And, and the fact that they need to follow Celeste out, again, makes sense because, you know, they've been running around. They've got all these rackles behind them. And, you know, Zane, while somewhat competent, is pretty much more incompetent as a Jedi. So it makes sense to stick with a Jedi that obviously knows what she's doing. So that works. And the fact that they're all down at the bottom of Terrace it builds into that whole aspect of KOTOR that you're just kind of wanting to know, you know, why were the Mandalorians there? What were they doing? What were they after? And this gives you that. 
And so we find ourselves, after they wind up uh, essentially falling down into a lower area after some explosions, uh, we find them conveniently in a room that's got a couple of dead Mandalorians, so they can use their jetpacks in a moment. And a bunch of those Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders have finally fulfilled uh, the mission, basically, that Celeste was supposed to do for the Jedi Covenant, Pole Cipher. This is Demigol's uh, assistant, second-in-command, uh, who has now found the Mirror Talisman. And one of the interesting things I always found, uh, especially with that secret journal of Dr. Demigol that came out later, um, was this idea that you've got Demigol, who is all about the idea of sort of the inherent force use and whatnot. We'll see more about that as we go along in the series, even after Vindication. Um, but Demigol was very much about believing that the Force exists and how is it being used and can you create a being who could use it who wasn't initially a Jedi and that sort of thing. But at least he's pretty much on the right track when it comes to where the Jedi's abilities come from. Pole Cipher, on the other hand, is the opposite. It's very much the uh, religion versus science type of argument where his argument is that it's the Jedi's artifacts, that the Jedi's technology, um, that again, kind of any sufficiently advanced alien technology will appear to be magic, etc., etc., um, that basically what you've got there is the Jedi use technology of some kind that makes it look like they're using the Force or magic, when really it's just technology that anyone could use if they could understand it. So he wants to get his hands on those types of artifacts in order to use it for the Mandalorians and to essentially build up a, a reputation and power for himself. So Pole Cipher, um, from briefly back in Flashpoint, is back. He has the Mirror Talisman, and as the Mandalorians leave... Celeste pulls on one of the dead Mandalorian jetpacks to follow. Uh, you know, she kind of lights it off, zips up into uh, the air, and <laughs> her way out of there. Because um, that's one of those, those I'm sorry, did you get punched in the face a few times type of panels. Um, and Zane pulls on the other one, grabs Griff, and follows behind her. You, you wonder if at some point Celeste should just turn around and force push them to knock them down, knock them both unconscious and go along on her way, or cut them down. And instead, in one of the things that's kind of the least believable aspect, I think, of this part of Vector, she just tends to let them follow along and follow along and follow along, and now with the jetpack, fly and follow along, rather than somehow stopping them from doing so. Uh, but it is that launching out of the little area they had fallen into, now knowing that the Mandalorians have the Mirror Talisman, where issue number one, or part one, of Vector ends. Well, there's some little things there, too. I mean, aside from the fact that she's, you know, going completely monkey out. But I like how she stuffed the headband into Griff's face. You know, she's like shutting him up. Uh, but when she launches up, she she wraps her long because she's got this super, super, I don't know, horse tail. You know, it's not really a ponytail. It's much thicker and longer. And, and you know, where a girl would take a ponytail and have like a half inch of the ribbon holding her hair, this goes from there all the way down to the last like three inches and it almost goes down past her knees. So when she's flying up with the jetpack, like she's actually got it wrapped around her right arm holding it away from the flames. So like that was a really cool attention to detail. And then there was, of course, this little clever joke, you know, as, as they're flying up, Zane's like, you heard what she said. You want to live forever? And then Griff's like, forget forever. Just get me to next month. And I'm like, oh, is that because the next issue comes out in a month? Ha, 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 ha. Like, th there is a little slapstickness going on here, which, which, like you said earlier, just didn't quite feel like a classic John Jackson Miller. I, I have to question if that was just because they wanted to make it more accessible to those new people. You know, someone's going to come in. We got to, you know, drum in here that these guys are, are the Laurel and Hardy of the group. And, you know, here we go. Um. Uh, but yeah, when you're looking at at Morn's face there, the way her eyebrows and forehead like 
I don't know what it is about it. She just looks so vilified. And I don't know if that was the purpose. Like, like it, it, did they draw her in this conglomerate way? So at some moments you kind of like you sympathize with her and other moments you kind of get this visceral like, oh, what the heck reaction? Uh, I mean, because that's kind of where I came from. You know, I, I, I wanted to enjoy this character, but they just kept giving her such weird looks that it really made it hard to do. That brings us into part two of Vector, which is issue number 26 of KOTOR. And we find ourselves landing on Jebel, the ice planet. The Mandalorians are using this essentially as a staging area to get ready for their next invasion, which we will soon learn is going to be on Alderaan. We very quickly on that first page, as Pulsifer is being uh, sort of not given his due in trying to return and having to wait for other transports and such, um... We, we are told that Cassus Fett's troop transports are on their way. They're not there yet, which is something that will wind up playing a role as we move further along throughout. And I must say, when Pulsiver takes off his helmet, he is probably the most realistic and consistent-looking character in this entire arc. Um, he is drawn so that he pretty much looks like the same guy, no matter which panel that you're looking at. And while that may not usually be an issue with comics, it certainly is in this arc. Um... He takes out the mirror talisman and is sort of playing around with it. He winds up uh, mentioning, learning about uh, bits about it from financial records um, that, or, well, from records that include financial rest records uh, from some Jedi Masters from Terrace, which you know, sparks Griff's interest. Hey, financial records. But that also means maybe there's some information in there that uh, might be able to give them some information about the Jedi Covenant, because that's the Jedi that they're referring to. Uh, and as Zane and Celeste and Griff are hiding in what, I, what is basically a ventilation shaft, which must be a very large ventilation shaft, certainly not a diehard-style teeny-tiny one you got to crawl through despite the size of the vent, um, Pulsifer is sort of playing around with the, uh, uh, with the, the Muir Talisman, and when Celeste tries to, to mind-trick him, you know, you want to throw it out the airlock, um, he, he's able to sort of grab control over himself again, you know, I want, I want, no, I want this, come to me. And in saying that, he essentially activates the talisman. The talisman is, is animated. I don't want to say it's alive, but very, very close to it, sort of animated with Sith uh, power or whatever, and it crawls up and attaches itself to him uh, and zaps him a little bit. Uh, and it, it's the beginning of this idea of, well, wait a second, we thought this was just an artifact. What on earth must it be able to do? Um, because it, it's, it seems like it has almost a mind of its own, as we will find uh, is the case here. Uh, I really did like that scene there. I mean, granted, it's kind of goofy with them hiding in the, the vent and not being spotted whenever they're, you know, talking to him and trying to mind trick him and such and how the vent seems to open up into this enormous shaft as almost like a separate room and there's just a ventilation grate between two different rooms. But from the standpoint of the way Pulsifer is drawn, just the idea of even before they even get there, he should know better because uh, it just crawled up your arm and attached itself there, Sparky. This is not something you can control. I think that sets up the menace of the coming issues pretty well. Yeah, I, I like the way that worked out. And the, the, you you mentioned how it was an artifact not quite alive. I liked how the way they played that off. I mean, it, it definitely comes across like Sith magic has animated this thing and it has taken a life of its own. 
and then as we get farther on, you know, you have the aspect of of, of Carnus himself being trapped inside of it. So you kind of get that feeling like, you know, like maybe he did like a uh, spirit transfer or something, kind of like what Palpatine was going to do later and transferred his essence into this, was hoping to kind of, you know, take control of whoever activated it. I, I thought that was a really cool, you know, twist. I thought it was something that, you know, fit with what I was expecting of Sith in that time frame. So it was like, OK, I can get down with that. Um you know, when, when Pol- Pulsifer, whatever his name was, when he takes off the helmet, honestly, I, I didn't even recognize him at first because I wasn't expecting that head underneath that helmet. I was expecting someone much younger. Uh, but I thought that worked. You know, it, it gave it a real feel. You know, I mean, he, he had like you know, uh, you know pattern balding going on. He had like a little tuft of hair in the front and a little bit of the Jean-Luc Picard, uh, you know, horseshoe around the edge there. I don't know. It, it was. It felt like that was a little bit of grounded realism for me. That that was cool. Um, when the a- amulet thing, the uh, the talisman comes alive, at that point, you know, you don't know what's going on because people are just getting electrocuted and they're dying. It's just like, whoa, what's what's this? But when they start to reanimate as ghouls, I mean, that was when things just kicked up into the uh, you know zombie territory of just creepy. You know, I mean, the ghouls were always an element of the Kotor game that I just. You know, it would get to that 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 flight, you know, trigger, you know, <laughs> zombie type stuff has always been one of those things that just scares the ever living Sith out of me and taking in and finding ways to tie it in with Sith alchemy and, and the Sith dark side and stuff like that. I think it's just brilliant and seeing it come to life and seeing them tie the rackles in in that regard. I, I just everything about it. I loved. Yeah, it is a cool element, although I personally I prefer if we're talking zombies, I prefer the stuff of say Red Harvest and such, the ones where they're they're assumed to actually be zombies as opposed to be. This is almost like a a, a forced Jekyll and Hyde type of thing, a one way Jekyll and Hyde, yeah, werewolf type thing. Um, that's pretty much. I mean, he's he's kind of hit on what most of the rest of this issue is. I mean, we've only got a few pages in, but most of the rest of it essentially just is um, Zane and Griff try to slip away. Uh, from the ship that they had stowed away on, uh, they wind up being found by the Mandalorians, and the Mandalorians—it's—it's uh, it's this rabble group essentially who are being brought in to become new Mandalorians, and they're being given their instructions of where to get their armor and that sort of thing. Um, and they—they they point out one of the uh, the Mandalorians who's there points out that they're basically supposed to go meet with their rally masters and learn what they need to learn very quickly because the plan is for this Mandalorian force to go and take. Alderaan, and that becomes one of the big points for uh, Zane that throughout this arc, he's going to want to try to somehow warn the Republic about the Mandalorians on their way to Alderaan. But it also ratchets up the tension because as the Retgul Plague winds up playing a bigger role in events on Jebel, there's the question of not just uh, Alderaan being taken over, but that means that there is a plan in the works that would intentionally or unintentionally bring the Retgulls off of Jebel and, and spreading further within the galaxy and such. Um, but as he and and Celeste and Griff, with Griff pretending to be a Mandalorian, try to make their way inside uh, the Citadel, inside one of the Mandalorian structures there, uh, she's still focused on the idea of taking down uh, and, and acquiring the Mirror Talisman. For, for Zane, it's all about you know trying to get in touch with the Republic, but he recognized that with him being a wanted criminal, they very much may not actually listen. Um, they wind up being found by some Mandalorians, but the Mandalorians who find them, one of them, I think, 
I don't think we're meant to believe that Celeste and Zane can look at him and see these little glowing pinkish, purplish kind of light nipples on him. Reminds me very much of the Batman suit in Batman and Robin. Um, but I think that's supposed to remind us when she says that the, the Mandalorians who find them were on uh, Pol Cypher's ship that, hey, these are the guys that when Pol Cypher put on the mirror talisman, he touched and kind of zapped, and then we didn't see what happened to them. Because these guys have been around Pol Cypher and the mirror talisman longer than any of the other Mandos, and sure enough, while they're holding Celeste at gunpoint or blaster point, the first of them and then others start to transform. And they become wreck ghouls, uh, with the initial thing being, well, Okay, so does that mean that they just caught the plague on Terrace and there was a, a longer incubation period and now they've turned into Rhett Ghouls and it's just the plague thing? How's it turn, uh, connect to the talisman? We learn that further as we go along with this arc. Um, but the rest of it's basically a running battle with these only to find two things that sort of ratchet up the tension or ratchet up the danger. One, one of the Mandalorian Rhett Ghouls, or Mando Rex, as they call them throughout the rest of this arc, uh, is able to still use his blaster, which is something that Red Ghouls generally can't do. They're generally thought to be mindless beasts, as if turning into Red Ghouls sort of empties out their mind or empties out their heads of their consciousness and leaves them an empty slate only acting on instinct. And yet, here's one able to consciously use a blaster. So there's that question of, well, wait a second, how are these or why are these Red Ghouls different than the ones that we saw in the KOTOR game and different than the ones that we saw in the previous issue? And on top of that, they walk outside and find, as I mentioned earlier, that this is not just a, a small little supply base or a training center of some kind. Uh, they look down and see a massive number of Mandalorian ships. This is a staging area for an invasion of Alderaan. And as they say, uh, it's not just a raid on Alderaan. They're going to invade. Worse, they're going to infect. Unless we do something, the Retgul Plague has just gone galactic as we end part two. And, you know, another thing that occurs to me is like the Mandalorians in their armor and stuff are probably some of the best drawn characters in the whole show. Uh, you know, they had that moment where, you know, they're them being Zane and Griff and, and the other group of people that came from Terrace are being talked to by one of the guys standing up on the thing. He's like, what's he say? The first thing he's uh, listen to me once you were Darmanda, ignorant outsiders. Those lives are over. You will raise your young as Mandalorians and defend them. You will wear our armor and speak our language. And you will serve the clan and rally when called. These are the Resolanar, the six actions sacred to our movement. Do them and you may live to call yourselves Mandalorians. Armor to fit your species has been crafted right there in our own ice citadel's warforge. Yours is blue. You will form up near the warriors in crimson, your rally masters. Look for them on the field and listen to them. They'll teach you our ways and keep you alive when we get to Alderaan. And, you know, so now you got that thread of Alderaan, you know, and, and this is all in that time frame when the Mandalorians are really making their push. So, you know, I was all excited. I'm like, oh, man, we're getting really close. We're finally going to get to those moments with KOTOR. It's all going to start to tie in. Yeah. You know, I was super excited about all that. One of the things that stands out to me on this is when it comes to the whole Mandalorian thing, and here's the colors of the armor. Uh, it bears mentioning, and I'm sure we'll someday talk about it on the show. Uh, it just depends on, on when we both have have it, have a chance to read it, and that sort of thing. I'm hoping they're going to do um, uh, different versions of this as opposed to just that super deluxe one. But we've talked about Book of Sith and Jedi Path. There's also the Bounty Hunter Code out there, uh, the one that was talked about on our year in review show. And while the first 
I would say two-thirds or more of the book that comes with it, or, or the big book, there's two little books with it, but of the big book that comes with it is the Bounty Hunters Guild Handbook, which is like a guide for bounty hunters and then has comments in it by Greedo and uh, Boba and so forth. The last little chunk of it is by far, to me, the most interesting part, and it's supposedly written by Tor Vizsla, but it certainly sounds a couple of times like it's actually pre-Vizsla writing it. There's even comments that maybe he's the writer um, just saying he's Tor Vizsla for the, the name recognition. But it's basically the Death Watch handbook. And in the Death Watch handbook, it talks about the history of the Mandalorians from their point of view and the nice. development of things like those six actions, the development of... Uh, the different colors for the Neo-Crusader armor. What is the Neo-Crusader armor based around? Uh, when it changes later, how is it still retained some elements of the Neo-Crusader armor? If you are into Mandalorian stuff, then even if you don't read the Bounty Hunters Guild handbook part of Bounty Hunter Code, you really, really need to read the Death Watch part of Bounty Hunter Code. Uh, it oh. really stands out having seen this part um, it seems like there was a, quite a bit of research done into the Mandalorians as we see them in this era to build up at least that era's portion of the Death Watch handbook. It is awesome. But that part by itself makes it to me on par with Book of Sith and Light Years Beyond Jedi Path because as a nice. chronology and continuity guy, I don't just want to learn about the culture. I want to learn the history of it. I want to see how you know the timeline of it all works, and that one certainly does a, an incredible job. Yeah, another thing that we see here at the end of this one is, you know, Griff, he puts on some armor that fits his species, you know, trying to do that whole, I'll just take you in as prisoners kind of thing. And he gets a gun, this big gun, and Zane's looking back, careful, Griff, remember how much you know about guns. It's okay, henchman, I got it set to stun, and the safety is on, I know what I'm, and he, <laughs> like, whips it from one hand to the other, from, like, left to the right, and it's all, chow, 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 and it just blows the entire roof, and it all comes collapsing down on him. So, I mean, you, you don't know what happens to him. It's a, it's a slick way of separating Griff from Zane, so Zane can go forward with Celeste Morn on his own. So I thought that was kind of slick as well, but, you know, I didn't actually catch the glowing nipples that you had talked about until you just pointed out. Like, I mean, yeah, they're right there the whole time. And it's, so that's supposed to be, I guess, just the signifying fact that he was touched by the magic of the talisman, I guess, right? I'm assuming so. Otherwise, it certainly doesn't appear to ever have an explanation unless maybe this Mandalorian is just kind of vain and wanted to, you know, adorn himself with LED nipples. <laughs> yeah, and I like the fact that, you know, Morn, she immediately recognizes what's going on, although it's not what, you know, she originally interprets. I mean, she sees it as the oracle plague, but it's not the plague per se. Like, like you were mentioning, you know, we get a different twist on how the plague works. I, and they'll go into that more in the next issue, but I like the fact that, you know, as it's happening to him, you know, like, the armor is burning. It's not really that the armor is burning. It's that their skin is burning and they're about to, you know, hatch. And that was, like the, to me, that was the creepiest part about it. It was like, you know, you go into this metamorphosis and hatch of something else, which kind of brings me back to an old Twilight episode I remember watching as a little kid where, you know, this little kid is being babysat by his grandparents and something happened and all the people fell over and then hatched into something else. I was just like, to this day, that's still sticks with me and something about that and this and the way that they just mutate into these they're, they're vicious looking demonic looking things these rat goals so i don't know the, the the werewolf aspect of it i mean you're right it's not quite zombie but it does have that 
feel of zombie with you know you get bitten or scratched and then you turn but i guess they do the same thing with werewolves so i i I like the theme involved with that and the way it carries over because this is the only way you get that rat ghoul plague later into the other eras because as far as we knew the rat ghoul plague died out well now we know why and i like the way that 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 rat ghoul story gets told as well that of course brings us into part three uh, in which the fight with the Mandorax continues, uh, but then we get an interesting conversation there uh, between Zane and Celeste, uh, talking about essentially how, boy, he is such a bumbling guy. Uh, why would they say you killed your classmates on Terrace? Uh, he says, it was my teachers. They're in some secret Jedi cabal. That's all he calls them, Jedi cabal, watching for the return of the Sith. When they had a prophecy that one of us would bring down the Order, they did something about it. You're saying your masters killed their own students and framed you? That's ludicrous. That's, that's my life. Which, you know, kind of always to me sounds like the, uh, the, uh, all my life from Anakin in Phantom Menace. Uh, I never gave them any reason to think I'd be capable of evil, but they've been hunting me ever since. But I'm not sitting still. The war's gotten in the way, but I'm going to clear my name. I'm discovering more all the time, which he is and will in this arc. I even know that Lucian reports to someone now. Krinda. Any idea who that is? And she, of course, has to hide the fact that she is part of the Shadows for the Covenant, but when she she answers, she says, um, no, obviously lying, Zane, maybe, maybe if there is some Jedi Covenant, they think they're doing the right thing for everyone. Uh, and they talk for a moment more, and then as they're walking away to try to stop, you know, to, to basically warn the Republic and the Mandalorians that are on their way, Cassus Fett's Mandalorians, about the Red Gold Plague so it can't spread, he says the, the, the line kind of almost as an afterthought as they're running away. Hey, say, Celeste, how'd you know it was called the Covenant? And obviously her, her cover is starting to unravel, but at the moment there's so much going on that Zane's not quite sure of, of the truth behind it. The truth is actually discovered, I thought was kind of nice, uh, by Griff. They had to lay out the whole financial records thing in the previous issue to give us a reason for Griff to want to get into one of the Mandalorian facilities so that he can get into those records. And in the process of going through that uh, data, he's got data from the Jedi from Terrace. Uh, apparently, Lucian calls his mama a lot, which makes sense because she's in charge of the Covenant. And we finally get the explanation, but it's a very quick explanation for the Rake Ghoul Plague. And this is the thing that intrigued me, because even after reading Vector twice in the past, it still felt a little nebulous to me how it is that the plague and the talisman are supposed to be connected when the plague is supposed to be a disease where you can get bitten and change, and yet it's also supposed to be connected to the talisman here. Uh, Lucian says in this little video report sent to his mother, conveniently, that Griff finds, he says, uh, uh, attached to Zemar's report on the mirror talisman. As you know, Karnas Mirror is believed to have been a Sith Lord of antiquity. Yes, he is. He's one of the ones from the Hundred Year Darkness, one of the ones who eventually goes and conquers Korriban and so forth, and they become the Dark Lords of the Sith. Um, before he vanished, he designed a talisman to turn those in close proximity into mindless thralls he could command. So the initial idea is that the talisman can transform people into so-called mindless thralls, as in like removing their mind. But that in and of itself seems to not be about transforming them into ret ghouls, but, but basically making them empty containers in the form that they previously existed. So if you were to use the original mirror talisman, I think, against someone who is human, They'll still look human, but their mind will essentially have been wiped or their conscious mind removed so that he could then use the talisman through the force to control them and 
give them instructions, like the Mando racks being able to still use their weapons. But then it continues and says, when the device was found to have no effect on force sensitives and many non-human species, he further engineered an infection which can be spread by those already in his thrall. Uh, because of this, the first circle of the covenant suggests a connection between the lost talisman uh, and the ancient unexpected retgold plague, uh, or unexplained retgold plague. The idea that he tweaked it because it wasn't working the way he wanted to, so he had to create a disease, essentially a zombie or monster disease, the retgold plague, that would then by itself spread through infection and transform people into essentially mindless beings so that if the, the talisman didn't clear out your mind so you could be controlled, the plague will clear out your mind so it can be controlled, and the, the, the talisman is used to also help spread that infection to those in his thrall, which then, then they can spread it, not having to be near the talisman, but it can be spread by bite. So it's sort of a thing where it's sort of the, the initial instigator of the plague, but the plague is spread biologically, but the plague is designed to do what the talisman itself was designed to do, which is essentially empty out the mind. Only now, if you were human and you got hit by the talisman, it wouldn't empty out your mind and you'd still look human. It would also hit you with that plague, so you would transform into a beast. Then it could control you with the emptied out mind, and you could then spread that army by biting people. Um, he finally further goes on to talk about uh, sending shadow agents to try to recover it uh, and mentions... Celeste Morn, which is what lets Griff know that she is working for the Covenant. But I, I found that, I, I don't know why it was the first couple times I read this that that still felt very nebulous to me, but it seems to be a way of, of sort of combining the idea of it being biological with being the Sith alchemy there. But it would have been nice perhaps to do that in flashback or something so that it got a little bit more detailed of an explanation instead of just a quick dump of exposition to Griff. I think it still works. I like the way that it, it connects those two concepts together. But it's one of those things that that's, I think it definitely slipped by me the first couple of times, at least the, the detail of it, because I was still getting to a point by the end of reading Vector having a hard time understanding how the plague and the device connect together if it's about, is it about control? Is it about spreading the disease? If so, then what about the biting? They apparently explain it here. They just explain it so quickly that it's kind of a over-the-head thing, at least for me at first. Yeah, I like the way it played out. It was like, oh, okay. So he was able to turn them into rat ghoul monsters at will, but the Jedi and stuff couldn't, so he made an infection so they could then get infected. And, oh, okay, he found a loophole. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting. You know, when... We're on Jeebel and we have Zane and we have Celeste Morn coming down in the snow and stuff. I, I noticed like this is the time where Zane's chin really goes uh, to that Wizard of Oz kind of green witched chin where it's super duper pointy. Uh, but with Celeste, I've noticed like if you put your finger across her nose, the top head of, of her head from the bridge of her nose up seems to be always normal it's the lower part that just seems to constantly be shifting but that two-page spread there between the two of them they both look so ridiculous that it's hard to even follow the words <laughs> you just keep drawn to the, to the weird conglomerateness of what's going on but yeah zane or not zane but griff when he gets in there and he's doing all the stuff I, I thought that was a slick way of getting the information to zane through him and it'll also give a reason for them both to get back together so that was kind of cool little twist that brings us back to Celeste and Zane. Uh, Celeste manages to get to, uh, they're at a communication little station, and she's able to get to the little communication device inside while Zane stands watch and uses it to contact Lucian. Uh, she gives him the warning about Alderaan and, of course, is also mentioning Zane Carrick. 
And he's, of course, telling her to, to kill him without delay, and she's not sure that's the right thing to do. She's starting to believe Zane and his side of the story rather than those of her superiors within the Covenant. Um, and she, she almost decides to take him out. Uh, when he finally comes in and asks her to stand watch so he can contact the Mandalorians uh, and basically tell them not to land so they don't accidentally spread the plague, she does lift the lightsaber up as if she's about to strike, but she chooses otherwise. Um, as he starts talking about, you know, uh, her standing guard and how he needs to contact them to, to warn them off, she sees he's doing the right thing, and she puts the lightsaber down. And I don't think he even is meant to be aware that she raised it up to, to nearly kill him. So Celeste is, uh, she's one of these characters where, one thing I will say that I like about her is that they at least start her out with all this baggage of being part of the Covenant and how focused she is on her mission, so that very quickly... We learn that we should be worried about what's going to happen if she's given the order to kill Zane. And it feels very natural here, despite how quick things are happening, for her to have those second thoughts. Because of those few instances we've gotten of her seeing the better side of Zane. So as, as quick as it seems, it almost feels, feels like her change of allegiance to look after Zane or to want to protect Zane as opposed to wanting to kill him or do whatever the Covenant orders her to do. Uh, comes as fast or faster than Anakin's fall to the dark side in Revenge of the Sith if you haven't read the novel. And yet here, I think, despite its speediness, it does work in this case. Yeah, I, I think for me, one of the more powerful scenes was when Zane actually contacts Fett. You know, Fett's like, you're just trying to save your world from us. Yes, but I'm also trying to save your worlds. Don't land. Survey first. You'll see. And he goes, why would you warn us? We are Mandalorians. And Zane, th this is one of the most deepest scenes for me, and, and it gets to the core of Zane's character and what it means for him to be a Jedi, even though he's no longer a Jedi. Your people will see fed out. And during that moment when he says that, you know, Celeste, she looks over at him, and I, I don't know, I think that's that's that moment, you know. I mean, she'd already decided not to go forward with attacking him. She was still kind of curious, but I think when he says that, when he goes, your people. I really think that that strikes a chord within her, and, and that's where the kinship is. I mean, that's when she finally deactivates the lightsaber. I mean, she had already decided not to strike him down, kind of give him a little benefit of the doubt, see where he's going with this. But after he says that, she deactivates it. And, you know, she's she's like, you're going back into the Synagogue with all those rat ghouls? Yeah, it doesn't seem smart, does it? But it's what we do. Because he's got to go find Griff. And, you know, again, it's like it's that aspect of loyalty. I mean, he's not just loyal to his friends. He's loyal to people. He's loyal to life. He's loyal to the Force. He's loyal to those core things that the Jedi at this time, especially the Jedi of the Covenant, have kind of seemed to have forgotten. You know, it's that thing that they need to get back to. I mean, they're so worried about the Sith that they're blinding themselves to the fact that they can be just as evil. That they're forgetting that the fact that these Sith originally came from Jedi who had strayed too far to the darkness. I mean, you know, the, the term Jedi Shadow, I, I remember back at the time thinking it was really cool because it seemed so dark, you know. And then I was watching Game of Thrones, and there was a reference to shadows being servants of the light. And it made me think back to this because we were rereading it at that time. And I was just like, wow, you know, that's okay. I could kind of get behind that, you know. I mean, a shadow can't exist unless it's in light. Okay, so these guys work in the darkness, but they are totally servants of Okay, and, and I don't know, that 
that was just something that was just so new and so so invigorating at the time. It was something I was really getting into. You know, it was something I was kind of really hoping to see maybe show up again in Night Errant uh, when we get there. I mean, we do see uh, references to like Lord Lord Drepa, which we'll get to later in the next issue. Which again were, were things that at the time this came out, the other comic series hadn't come out, so there wasn't really much of a tie. Same with Book of the Sith, where it gave us that whole aspect of these guys were all part of one crew. You're like, oh, but these seeds are here now. You know, they're planted. They're very subtle. And if you you know you've you've seen those other things, you're like, oh, you're getting a lot more out of this. Uh, you know, the first time through, it was it was just the breadcrumbs being dropped, but now you realize it's a trail going to something awesome. That's right. So as he said, they uh, they managed to contact Cassus Fett and uh, you know warn him off. Though there's some question of whether or not he's actually going to listen at first. Um, like I said, very powerful scene. You know, the your people. It's one of the best character moments that Zane gets. Uh, and it is a testament to the writing that when he says your people, the emotional impact is still there instead of us looking at the panel in which he says it and how ridiculously moronic they've made Zane look. Uh, as he goes throughout the rest of the scene looking like, again, either the child of Leno or someone who is a refugee from Dragon Ball Z. Um, after that, though, they split up because he's got to go back and try to find Griff. And as he's looking for Griff, he is captured by Mandorax and brought to Pulsifer. Uh, Pulsifer basically wants to understand how to control uh, the mirror talisman. Uh, he doesn't, uh, he talks about how, you know, he wants to uh, 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 surpass the memory of Demigol. I like the fact that they talk about the, uh, how they, uh, it's as if he thinks Demigol will rise from the dead. Oh, how True it is, although you have to wait till later in the series to, to get the meaning of what he's saying. Um, and basically, he's just trying to get Zane to control it, to show him how to control the Reckless, to show him how to control the Talisman, but he has no idea. Um, so now Pulsifer wants to find whoever is with him, perhaps. And uh, he brings up this, this concept of, oh yeah? Zane, if you won't tell me, I have a fate worse than death for you, which opens up uh, the, 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 Deus Ex Machina, the, uh, the, the item that just happens to be there that'll allow us to wrap up this story in the next issue and send Celeste forward to be able to be the cross-through character going all the way up into the era of the Dark Times. You know, you've got characters from Dark Times era, Rebellion era, Legacy era who have lived throughout it, uh, a trasa, crook, but how do you do that with Celeste over thousands of years? Well, you do it with this. The thing that's a fate worse than death is Remulus Drapa's Obliette. Uh, it's like this casket-looking, stasis chamber-looking thing uh, that was originally designed to capture and torture Karnas Muir himself, and it makes sense that Pulsifer would have it because they would have found it amid much of their digging in search of the Muir talisman. We will find this same type of stasis chamber used uh, and as he was saying, uh, the Lost Tribe of the Sith Spiral comic book series, when we finally get to meet Drapa and make him the main villain of a tale here. Uh, but as he's questioning Zane, he gets very, very close with the talisman to Zane, and the talisman, again, kind of of its own mind, releases itself off of Pulsifer's arm and tries to connect itself to Zane. Uh, Pulsifer tries to stop it, but of course, by, by having it removed... Uh, he has no more control over the Rek Ghouls, who then pounce on him to tear him apart. And as the Talisman is trying to, to grab Zane and connect himself to it, um, she is not willing to allow that to happen. Uh, she being 
Celeste. You know, you're not supposed to have it, Zane. Trust me, you don't want this. Um, she knows a bit more about it, and she essentially calls out to the talisman, you know, I'm a Jedi, and it finally uh, kind of jumps up and connects itself to her, and she becomes its new bearer, and will continue to be the bearer throughout pretty much all the rest of Vector. And since this is a character that is one of our primary characters, as opposed to Pulsifer, we get to actually see something that uh, she sees thanks to the Force, but also something that uh, we get to see because of her being a, a primary character here for us. We get to see that as she puts it on, there's this spirit, visage, mind, whatever, of Karnas Muir, who she sees and who essentially is now sharing her mind thanks to uh, the talisman itself. Uh, and there's really nothing left of that issue, barring just her standing up, and it turns out that they don't need to worry about the Rake Ghouls killing Griff or Zane right there like they killed Bullcipher because, well, they're all bowing to Celeste. Uh, you know, they're not a problem, not for me, she says, but I'm not sure what it means for everyone else. And so ends issue three. Yeah, that was that was a cool moment, especially for Celeste. I mean, when she does the I'm a Jedi come to me, I I don't know, I felt like, you know, on my on my rereads and stuff, she was really sacrificing herself. Like she kinda had the most idea of what really was gonna happen here, but as you also see once Karnas shows up, she really didn't have the fullest grasp of what's going on. So there's that conflict as well. Like, you know, she she has some info. She's trying her best to control it, but she still doesn't quite hundred percent understand it and that's apparent when she's like, who, who, who are you? And he's like, the future and you are mine. I just, that was kind of, kind of spooky. And, and I mean, since this came out, you know, I mean, I, as I've said before, I'm a Spider-Man fan and we've got the uh, superior Spider-Man with Doc Ock inside and sharing a psyche with Peter Parker. So this is kind of very similar to that. And I like the way that, you know, in, as we see in the next issues and later in the series, he's really pushing that. That brings us to the fourth issue of Vector, the last one for Knights of the Old Republic, issue number 28. And, and really quick, before you jump into that, I want to say, though, of all the covers out there, this one, the cover, is what I was hoping we were going to get for the look of Celeste Morn. She looks like a regular character. This is the, this is the quintessential bait-and-switch cover. <laughs> and I must say, though, and this will change the way you look at that cover forever, Okay. Uh, it just hit me as I was sitting here flipping through these. That cover, I can't look at that cover now, I guess because of how much they've used this song over and over again on our local talk radio station uh, to promote, like, the Herman Cain show and whatnot. Um, but I can't see that cover without looking at Celeste Morn and thinking Katy Perry, hearing the song roar in my head and imagining <laughs> all of those Mando racks behind her dancing in unison. It all of a sudden <laughs> looks like a Broadway musical production to me. Uh, where... Totally undercutting the whole from the, you know, on the front lines of Armageddon thing that the cover says. Um, that brings us, though, into part four. Somehow or another, this part of the story has to be wrapped up quickly, and Celeste has to be set up so that she can move forward into the next storyline in Vector, which, of course, is the two issues of Dark Times. Um, we see just this massive, massive war zone where the Mandalorians are fighting off the spread of the Rake Ghouls as they are controlled by Celeste, and she kind of goes back and forth between the Sith-eyed Celeste, where she's being kind of caught up in this power, versus when she's kind of normal Celeste and willing to listen to reason from Zane. Um, but as she is controlling these Mandalorians, 
um, she gives another explanation again of how this is working. Um, Zane asks how they can use speeders and weapons because rate goals are supposed to be mindless, at least the ones back on Terrace, the ones that are just made by the plague, not being controlled by anybody with the talisman. She says the plague carves out and discards the target's personality, but the beings learned skills remain, waiting to be activated. So while racks on their own only serve their own hunger, the wielder of the talisman can draw upon what they were. Again, sort of that's the reanimating power of the talisman itself. Again, those two explanations, that one and the one a couple issues ago, do a decent job of explaining it, but it's sort of blink and you'll miss it exposition um, that sometimes gets missed, at least certainly in my case. Um, but she talks about this idea that, uh, as Karnas Murr said, uh, to them will fall the future, that the right goals will just continue and continue and continue and continue as they grow. Um, she is controlling them at the time. Um, and they, she uses that to bring Griff back to them, although that's when Griff is able to, re, to uh, reveal to Zane that, as he learned, she is a member of the Covenant. Um, she says that she was part of a recovery team to find Sith relics and dispose of them for everybody's sake, which begs the question, where do they dispose of them? Which we'll find out in uh, later issues here. Uh, she reveals that the leader is Lady Krinda. Uh, when Zane is like, yeah, aha, I was right, you do know her, um, she explains that that is the mother of Lucian Dre, which was someone that apparently he never mentioned to Zane. Um, she says she lost her entire family in the Sith War, giving her a reason to join the Jedi Covenant to make sure the Sith don't ever uh, emerge again. And when Griff tries to question uh, the motives behind the Covenant, she basically force pushes him, tells him to shut up, and says that if the Covenant's corrupt, then everyone's corrupt. Nothing matters. Nothing's pure. Nothing but power. Which, again, is leading down this idea that this is her shaky belief system, and they don't want to throw her entirely to the dark side here. Um, she does plan to finish her mission, and which would include killing Zane and Griff, but what finally brings her to her senses, as we end out this first major scene is when Zane basically has her look down to the ground. You know, uh, says, your mission, Celeste? Your mission is to protect the galaxy from Sith power. Well, look behind you. There's your threat. Millions of Mandalorians all gone. An infinitely expanding army of the Sith, that is the rank ghouls, and created by you. Unimaginable damage, Celeste. You've just gotten started. And that finally brings her to her senses. The, the, the constant back and forth of... Good Celeste, bad Celeste that we get here within the first half of this issue. Um, finally, and, and in a sense, without the, the mirror talisman, the stuff we got in the previous issues with her, of, of whether she's going to follow the Covenant or she's going to kill Zane, is she, is she not, that sort of thing. Finally starts to sort of, sort of peel away, and we get to the real Celeste, that she is a good person trying to do the right thing. And when it comes down to it, no matter what she can or can't believe from her background or what's happening around her, She's going to fall back on trying to at least do what is right. Very much like Zane in that respect. Yeah, going back to the beginning, I love how when it first starts off, it kind of picks up from Karnas Muir's standpoint. You know, he's got the little red boxes, and it starts at, you, like you said, you're watching the Mandalorians fight off the, the Mando racks, and it goes, and though the enemy brought great numbers to the field of battle, for every number there is a negative. Their strength became my own. Their minds became my own. All flesh is my flesh. None shall move, save I will it. And this is the rule the Sith were promised. And I have made it real. 
And I like how in the next panel, you know, Zane, he's kind of holding a broken sword and he's looking at her as it's all going on. But it kind of mirrors the original vision in the beginning. And I like how, you know, the prophecies and visions can always be misread or how there's truth in moments. And, you know, it kind of plays to that how, you know, in this case, Zane's the one that's standing where uh, Celeste was next to, you know, Murr. I, I just thought that was a, a little twist. And then. Right when you were saying, you know, as Zane was about to make that comment about, you know, look behind you, he goes, uh, or no, it was her, what she was saying, there's nothing but power. She goes, Lucian is right. You are a trickster and you have done unimaginable damage. And I like the fact that, that, you know, he, Dre was trying to manipulate her. And at that moment, she's just like, you know, he's right. You are somebody I can't trust. And it's like, that's the last thing you want to hear her say at this point, because her trusting him is the only thing really keeping Zane alive so far. I mean, the whole, your people, I mean, that really bought a lot of trust from her. So I thought that was really cool too. And the fact that he just like, you know, drives the lightsaber right through her temple with the look behind you, you are the big bad. Like that moment's great. I mean, she drops to the knees and she's like, no, I mean, that changes everything for her. That, that puts her from, you know, I want to control this to, I can't control this. You need to take me out. Right. And that, of course, is what is bringing them into uh, the, the scenes that will set the stage for what comes next. Um, basically, she wants him to kill her. You know, Kassensvet's transport, transports will be here soon. Please, while I can still control it, strike me down. Though there's that question of will that actually help because who knows, it may just come off of her and then jump onto Zane. Um, but he has, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he has a better idea. The idea being... Use that obliette, use that stasis chamber, drape a stasis chamber, uh, torture chamber, whatever, to essentially capture Karnas, which had been the original plan, only in this case it's his spirit as held in the talisman on Celeste. Um, it's a torture chamber, but it's safer than leaving her outside. And as she's getting into it, uh, there on Jebel, she says, uh, Zane, when your ship arrives, so we know that his friends are coming to get them, Take me to Odrin, to the Sanctum of the Exalted. It's where, it's where I was supposed to take the talisman. This key will get you in, Zane. There are Covenant researchers there. They understand Sith artifacts. Maybe they can help me. It's supposed to be to help Celeste, but she has just given him access to the Sanctum, which becomes the basis of the next two-issue story arc, Exalted, which leads into a single-issue transition story turnabout and leads us directly into Vindication which is in many ways the climax of the first few years of storytelling for KOTOR. So that's our moment that is setting things up for Zane for future story arcs there. Um, not yet necessarily setting up uh, future story arcs as far as, as Vector goes, just yet our future steps in it. Um, uh, she gets put in there, she says, before being fully put into stasis. You know, you really didn't kill the Padawans, did you? Then listen, you must reach Krinda. If what you say is true, she never would have allowed it. Something is wrong, and she would want you to stop it. She's devoted, Zane, not evil. Just like, it says, just like you, referring to her. Um, this is another thing, leading into what we are eventually going to see with Vindication. The idea that Krinda is being misled. She is not truly in control of what's going on. And you initially get this sense here that it must be Lucian who's the manipulator because he's the one we tend to think of as the big bad guy. But given that it's the idea earlier in this arc that Lucian takes orders from someone, which is Krinda, it certainly doesn't seem like it'd be the other way around. So you get this opening for us to finally learn that there is someone else behind the scenes pulling the strings on Krinda. Uh, but as she is put into the stasis chamber, the Obliette, 
it means the rape ghouls now have nothing controlling them. They just start going completely wild. Thankfully, the Moomaw Willowaw arrives, bearing really the rest of our main cast. Uh, the Moomaw brothers, of course, are aboard. We've got Jeriel, we've got Alex Squinquar Gesimus, who we will soon learn of by a different name. Um, we have, uh, I'll put quotes around it, Roland Dyer uh, aboard the ship with them. And basically just together managed to save them uh, and get them off the planet just as Cassus Fett's fleet shows up. And he does not land. Zane says, you know, know, I've got to warn him again not to land. Maybe this time he'll listen to me. Cassus doesn't land. He just nukes the entire freaking planet like he did previously. But in this case, he does it as a means of essentially saving everyone in the galaxy. Uh, And he thanks, you know, thanks... Zane saying that the Mandos are in his debt, which is something that can play out uh, later. We get the point where Griff, in this final conversation, says, when talking about the uh, the plague, says, uh, Griff, did they bring the plague from Terrace? Griff says, it was a Sith artifact. It transformed the Mandalorians into rake ghouls. A single artifact did all that? Amazing, says Alec, who will eventually be, spoiler alert, Darth Malik. Setting up yeah. Revan and Malik going to search for things like the Star Forge and such. Um, and now we finally have the entire crew together. Toss in Slisk, who's also there, and toss in Shell, um, who was the one who was getting the constable's family off the planet, hence why the constable was still there on Terrace herself. Um, and you've got the entire crew here ready to go. And they ask what he has in mind. He says, I'm going to honor Celeste by doing what she told me to do. And you might say, well, Wait, Honor Celeste? Where's Celeste? We'll see. They don't get the Willowaw to pick up the stasis chamber, the Obliette, before the nukes get dropped. So as he's saying this, you know, I'm going to do what she told me to do, all of it, and I'm going to take down the Covenant and clear our names in the process. I have to. After all, she gave me the key. As they're flying off, we see what has happened to the Obliette. It has not been destroyed in the nuclear attack, but underneath the shattered ice of Jebel, underwater... There's the, the, the Obliette. There's the stasis chamber just waiting to someday be found. And we are told as it ends, Celeste's story continues in Dark Times number 11. And Zane's plan goes into action back here in Knights of the Old Republic number 29, which looks very much like 28 unless you're really paying attention. Um, <laughs> it makes for a cool ending, and I was wondering how on earth do they wrap this up so it affects both this and the later series in Vector and... They managed to pull it off. And in this one, I think the art doesn't bother me as much. Because in this one, there is so much of the wildness of the Rat Ghouls that it makes sense for the Rat Ghouls to have that, you know, let's do Clone Wars on LSD um, type of art style. And there's less time spent with weird looks for the main characters. Um, it's like it kind of comes around and it becomes more serious artistically as it plays out this last issue. So all in all, a, a strong ending for this one. Yeah, I like the ending. I mean, when Zane comes out after putting Celeste into the Obelisk, you know, Griff's like, well, that was good of you. Yeah, it's what we do. Yeah, it's what you do, but you're my ride. You didn't know the name of your own master's mother? He never mentioned, he never invited me into the house, okay? He ignored me. I'm just lucky I knew how to turn on a lightsaber. And, you know, of course, they think they're safe up top, and then the rat ghouls start digging up through the bottom, you know, and then you're just like, oh, man, they're going to be attacked by these now totally wild because they're no longer being controlled rat ghouls. You know, in the sense, you've just got 
the brain is, has been shut down and these are just full on the, the plague style, you know, rackles that you remember from the game The you know, I, I don't think at this point they're using any weapons anymore that that's all came to an end. They just went completely, uh, you know, mindless to that regard. But yeah, when, when Alex shows up, he's wearing the full on, he's wearing the full on Darth Malik costume at this point. Like, I mean, if you can't figure out who he's going to be, by the look of him when he drops down and he's like, come on Zane. I don't think you've played KOTOR enough because <laughs> I mean, he's just missing the head tattoos at this point and then losing the jaw. Uh, but yeah, when, when he, he being Zane talks to Cassus Fett and Cassus Fett launches all the missiles. The thing I like the most is, you know, you watch it play out with the nukes going up, the Rackles being incinerated, but you've got Zane just freaking out. He starts out in like a total moment of rage screaming, not again. And then, like shock hits him and his eyes wide and he's not again. And then finally sorrow hits him and his head drops down and he's whispers it not again. And at that point, you know, you got the full on wash of the nukes as everything's been blown away and stuff. And the next scene, you know, you get Cassus giving him a message, you know, giving him his thanks. And, you know, Zane's just, you know, hands in his head, just totally buried. Then he gets up and he's, you know, they're in my debt and he's got his hand covering his face. I mean, he is tore up about this, you know? I mean, this is another one of those moments where he totally let everyone down, but yet because of the fact that Celeste gave him that key, she told him who, you know, the name was attached to and the fact that he actually knows these people even more, you know, it, it, I like the fact that it actually sets him off on that other vector. For this story, it really works in that regard. I know when we get to you know the later arcs, when we jump from uh, Rebellion going up into Legacy, that gap or that 100-year gap or whatever, I, I don't think they did as well with that one as they do with this one. I mean, putting her in the Oblith, that little, that little thing, it makes the reason why she stays exactly the same age make sense. But later, they don't do something similar, so it's really kind of hard to swallow why she still looks so young and so much time has traveled by and, and even the Rackles that she was with end up killing themselves kind of stuff. But at this point, it, it's all making sense. It's a good closeout. You know, the four issues really did a good job of setting up, you know, driving points about her, give you enough of the information about her that when you move forward, you know enough about it that you're not sitting there scratching your head with Luke and Vader as there's someone across this person going, wait, who are you? What are you doing? Uh, so that worked out. I like the way that that plays out and the fact that the whole group is now together. Uh, when we see later how they find, you know, Celeste, I think that that ties in really well. But at this point, the nukes have just turned all the ice into water and stuff. And so you've got the oceans and stuff all, all caught up. I'm, I always envisioned that everything kind of got solid again. I don't know if it was always solid and there was water, at the, if water was at the core of the planet or not. It, that was never actually established, but... It works. It works well. It does a good job. If you can overlook the art, the craziness of it at times, like you said, I think the fact that we had the rat ghouls going nuts and stuff probably helped make that work a little more. I just remember when I first read this, I absolutely couldn't stand it. I was praying to God that they weren't going to stick with this art style because it was just too cartoony for my taste. You know, I mean, we were just at that point where we were just getting past the word bubbles on the covers and then they went into that style. It was like, what are we doing? Like, can't we just stick to something that's just, you know, give me Weaver. <laughs> you know, that was where I was at at this point. So I guess that brings up the question that we should hit or the questions that we should hit as we round out each of these. And that is um, just based on Recalling where these series go, uh, first off, does this do what was promised it, on the one hand? That it is supposed to irrevocably change something about the series and the characters that it is in. 
And then second, um, is this arc a new reader-friendly arc, an accessible arc, the way that they initially described it needing to be when setting out the mission for Vector? Uh, what do you think? Was it accessible? And is this a game changer the way it's supposed to be? I think it was accessible. I, I think they, they left off just enough stuff. And like you said at the beginning with the, the you know Laurel and Hardiness of Zane and Griff, that they added enough of their character interaction to give you the feel for their friendship in the one issue. I think that worked. It may feel a little odd at times, but that goes back to, you know, you, you want to go back and reread the other stuff so it doesn't feel as odd. That oddity is just your curiosity. You know, once your curiosity gets kicked into motion, you want to know more. Uh, did a game change? Absolutely. This one especially, it really set things on a new motion. I mean, you have not just what's going on with the characters in the main stuff, but you know, now you've got, in a sense, the Ratko plague is going to start dying off from this point on. There should not be, you know, if they can get terrorists under control, there should not be any more Rackles. The Mandalorians just got dealt a significant blow. And Zane himself, he's now on a, on a more Avenger-style mission than he was before, but he actually has a target now. You know, and like you mentioned as well, Alec now has a reason to start looking for Sith artifacts. And I think that's probably the most powerful vector from this is that one because up until now, you know, you've had a, a feeling that they were going to get there, but now you have a reason why they started to go there. And I really think that that plays well. Yeah, I would agree that, uh, there are references to things in the past, but this particular arc, I mean, yeah, it does wind up requiring some previous knowledge of the covenant and such. But I think between the dialogue with Celeste and Zane, and the way that the issues are set up with those opening crawls, so to speak, on the, the inside cover page. This is a fairly accessible arc, without being so accessible that it's completely disconnected, a la Star Wars Volume 2. Um, it does a good job of being accessible. I think someone who hadn't read the series, but who recognizes that, yeah, they're jumping into something that already exists, um, would have found it as accessible as it possibly could be. Um, as for affecting things in the future, yeah. Setting up Exalted, you know, kicking him off to go where he's going to find what he needs to find to eventually wind up going up against the Covenant, um, giving him the key for that, the confirmation of Krinda, the idea that there's someone behind the scenes uh, with her. It's much like some of the other previous arcs when it came to Knights of the Old Republic. It's adding more information slowly but surely to lead up to Vindication. But, it, you know, as it said in the little bit about what's coming in the next issue, his plan starts to really kick into motion once now they know to go to the Sanctum of the Exalted. So in that sense, this one at least, the Knights of the Old Republic arc of Vector, definitely has fulfilled the promise of Vector. Uh, and for those who are trying to read it, there is a little bit of confusion, by the way. I guess I should probably note here. If you get the individual issues, it's 25 through 28 of KOTOR, but these are not issues from a regular KOTOR trade paperback. What you're going to find is that there is a trade paperback that is listed as Vector Volume 1, Chapters 1 and 2, which includes Knights of the Old Republic and the Two Dark Times issue of Vector. But when it comes to the numbering of the trade paperbacks, they number this as KOTOR Volume 5 and Dark Times Volume 3. So if you're looking for this, uh, sometimes it'll be filed under KOTOR, sometimes under Dark Times, but most of the time set apart under Vector. So the place you go to buy your trade paperback usually looks like it says KOTOR Volume 1, 2, 3, 4, 6 all the time. 
Look under V for vector because that's probably where you're going to wind up finding this one situated in most comic and bookstores. Now we're going to go ahead and hit the covers. And one of the things I like about this cover, the fact that, did, like you just said, the whole vector arc, they all have vector down at the bottom and it says part one of 12, part two of 12 and so forth. But also at the top, they do the same type of similar with the white background with the black Star Wars. And then you've got the talisman in the corner. I, I thought that was cool. It gives it a uniform feel for each one. Uh, again, like I said, this series was a very much bait and switch for me. The covers really kind of drew me in each one. The first one had a promise of the connection from all the different eras. Although the first one probably is the weakest of the covers for me in, in regards of you know capturing likenesses. Vader is really the only one on point. Luke, I, you can kind of tell it's Luke. Cade kind of looks really super old. And Zane... I, I almost recognize Zane, mainly only because of the clothes and the lightsaber. But it's a really cool pose. You know, Vader's standing in the back. He's got his arms spread. They all have their lightsabers drawn. And, you know, this series gives me, and especially later as we continue, though, this is one of those series that really gives me that feeling that Zane Carrick may be one of the progenitors or, or the the, uh, the single roots of the Skywalker line, that the Skywalker line may have came from him. Uh, because, you know, the rest of the characters in this are all Skywalkers. So fate, you know, there's that side of me that just says fate demands that, you know, it's the same bloodline from Zane. That, you know, Zane set it in motion and the Force brought his ancestors in to wrap it up and finish it. You know, Anakin was the chosen one, but I've always felt like the chosen one blood has been in Luke, has been in all his ancestors after that, and the Force has always kind of thrown them into the places they needed to be as fate demands it to stop situations that needed to be stopped. And this series gave me that feeling like, you know, Zane was a part of that bloodline. Uh, you know, they've never actually said that, but this series definitely leads a strong argument towards it. Uh, I like the fact that they got like this force lightning in the background of it. And it's just those characters, you know, it's kind of shaded. There's enough light that you can see them, but it's also dark enough that you can't quite see their faces. Their lightsabers kind of light up their faces. So that worked. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, 26. It, that's the point where we start getting like scenes from inside and stuff. And that was where I was like, Oh, oh cool. We're going to get this, this scene. Cause I think like this is about the time where, you know, I really started getting into, you know, all the singles and stuff, but they were far enough ahead that I was able to buy them in batches still. I hadn't quite caught up to getting the weekly episodes and waiting for the next one. Uh, so I was able to get most of this series at the same time. Uh, and when you see in the next one, you know, Zane's in a hall and he's got the rat ghoul with the Mandalorian armor coming at him and stuff. And he's got his lightsaber blade ignited. This is the style of the art that I was hoping to get on the inside. You know, you see the the cold breath coming off of Zane. Zane looks like himself. He doesn't look like the weird, you know, Wicked Witch of the West from Oz kind of thing to it. The detail, the coloring looks really cool. When you get to 27, that's another one of those that I would have loved to see in this art bring those issues to life because Zane's strapped down to the torture chamber that Pulsifer has and Pulsifer's just kind of got the he's got the t talisman it's wrapped around his hand still and he's got that lightning that he used on the first ones and it shows all the mandaracks around him and stuff but again the attention to detail is just glorious but 28 I think 28 for me you know granted you, you, with the Katy Perry roar that's definitely going to change it for me but the way she's standing there Celeste Morn's character, this is how I've always seen her. I didn't see her as the, the morphing monkey that we got in the issues. I always saw her as the, you know, the, the solid character that we see here on this cover with the army all behind her. I don't know. At that moment, it was like, oh, oh, holy crap. You know, what's going to go on? But as we see, it's not as 
Armageddon-like as the cover would make it appear. But it, the cover did a good job of selling the intensity of what's going on in the series. I mean, the threat of the talisman is big. I mean, if that talisman did get in the wrong hands, that would be a definite game changer as to what could happen to the galaxy at large. Yeah, cover-wise, I got to agree pretty much across the board here. I mean, 25, cool cover, but yeah, they look... It, it's like... Because it's in shadow, there's less of a need to make sure the faces actually do quite match up. I mean, Luke does look like Luke, but uh, Cade and Zane certainly look awkward. In fact, I would say that Zane, uh, very much like um, when we first meet him in, or, or I guess the way that Luke looks, excuse me, inside the issue, I don't know. I have a hard time even looking at that image and seeing Zane and thinking male. I think just short-haired woman when I see Zane on that cover. So, uh, cool concept for the cover, but just don't look too closely at the faces. Uh, 26, you know, decent enough cover, makes sense with what's on the inside. 27, same thing, although I will say that it takes me a moment to recognize that it is Pulse Cipher there in the yellow over Zane's head on 27, and not Lucian, because he certainly looks like he has a different look on the cover than Pulse Cipher has in the issue itself. Yeah, uh, he's got hair. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly makes for kind of a cool, like, monster movie type cover, though. And then, yeah, 28 is definitely the strongest of the four covers. Although, again, you know, there's the uh, the aspect now of how I look at it and and have to laugh a little bit based on just the, the thing that it brings to mind. I think it has always brought to mind the idea of sort of the, uh, the now it's the giant Disney type musical number. Um, but uh, for some reason, that's the song that now pops into my head when when looking at it. And I do like the fact that not only do they say vector at the bottom and give it the part, however many of 12. So you recognize that that is the case, that this is part of a broader series. You can always recognize it on the individual issues, no matter which series you're looking at it. I do like the fact that up in the corner, they have replaced the usual symbol used for the era with that symbol of the mirror talisman, though we will find that that is something that is um, not entirely consistent in the way that it's set up throughout. Uh, and I, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention, I mentioned how uh, this gets set up as Vector Part 1 or Vector uh, Volume 1, Chapters 1 and 2 when it comes to trade paperbacks. If you do want to get this as part of an old uh, Knights of the Old Republic trade paperback or omnibus, it is in Knights of the Old Republic Volume 2 if you're getting the omnibus series. Uh, but that, of course, is just the Knights of the Old Republic issue. So if you want all of Vector, you're going to have to then find the stories for Dark Times rebellion and legacy at least if you get that vector volume one trade paperback you've got this and you've got the dark times part you only have to hunt down one more publication to get the other half of vector now is that the same for the books i know that they got the kotor book one book two and they're doing the same with legacy did, did they cover that one and that one as well you about the hardbacks yeah i have no idea because i haven't bothered looking at the hardbacks because i don't collect trades see i'm i'm on the fence there because you know, with the omnibuses dying down and all that and the prices dropping and everything, I'm kind of like, do I want to switch to that format, have them all that way? Or do I want to be able to, you know, have my single issues, like, like you said, where you're going from KOTOR Volume 4 to Volume 6, and you're like, wait, where'd Volume 5 go? I, I, I don't know if I want to make that jump. And so I, I'm curious when I see those hardcovers and stuff all coming out. They look cool. I love the hardcovers that I have for uh, Heir to the Empire and for the Thrawn trilogy. You know, uh, and, and Dark Empire was the other one that I have. And I, and I love them. They're, I love the solidness of them. I love the way that they're stitched. They're bound together. They're really solid books. 
Uh, and, you know, you sit down to read one of those and it's uh, it's almost a real chore because you, know, you sit down with a trade. You can get through that pretty fast. You know, you go through an arc. Yeah, no problem. Single issues are a breeze. But once you get into that realm of omnibuses and books, it's like, whoa, you just took, you know, it's like reading a regular book because you've really slowed down the reading process at that point. So I'm on the fence as to whether or not I want to kind of make that shift. But when you when you have issues that aren't collected in one trade or the next and stuff, kind of leaves me wanting just to leave them in singles. <laughs> now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. Hey, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. And may I say, when talking about the whole Audible thing, I know a lot of folks hear this and they're like, okay, we're going to hear the Audible thing again. Yeah, 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 because they hear it in each episode because it's, it, it's a sponsor and everything. Um, but I got to say... I am again going back right now, and I am listening to A Patriot's History of the United States. It is ridiculously long, but I can't tell you how many books I've had a chance to, to quote-unquote read that I wouldn't have got a chance to just because of time that I have thanks to doing audiobooks. Whether it's commuting back and forth to work and getting just a little bit each day or, or otherwise – yeah, they're a little more expensive than books when you're talking about buying them on CD or something. They're a little more affordable through places like Audible. Um, it, it, at least it gives you a chance to catch up. And I would suggest to anybody, uh, if you haven't ever heard or read, for instance, Matthew Stover's audiobook of Revenge of the Sith. I mean, you got free trial type stuff with Audible and such. Try that. Um, it's a long book unabridged, but man, does it change the approach and the perspective on Revenge of the Sith for a lot of people. Um, and I just, I just like the concept anyway. I've, I've always been someone for whom audiobooks have been a great way to, um, to keep up with things because, you know, the older you get and the more responsibilities you get with careers and such, the less likely it is you're going to have time to necessarily sit down a lot with a good physical book or even an, an ebook reader in your hand. So, um, cool. I know we put it on here quite a bit as, as the, the advertisement and such, but I'm a huge advocate of audiobooks because of how much that's helped me um, keep up with stuff in the past and check out stuff I otherwise couldn't have checked out. So uh, give it a try, you know, if you get well, the opportunity. We're looking at two months now. I'm still struggling through Razor's Edge, and it's not that the book's bad. It's just that I don't have enough time. Yes, it is. To... You lie. <laughs> Razor's <laughs> Edge trying... is a bad book. I try to be, be be nice, but it's that I'm, I don't have much time, and when I do have time, it's not drawing my attention to where. I'm more willing to not set it down. I mean, like other books like Crucible. Okay. I got that one. I read it in two weeks. I'm just like, I could not set that book down. I had to know what was going to happen next. It was impacting stories that I was already aware of things like that. But you know, in this case, I'm just like, you know, what little time I have, it just doesn't hold my attention long enough. So I'm looking at two months now and I'm just like, man, if I just listened to this on the audiobook, it'd be done. When I was working at Kodak, working 12 hour graveyard shifts and stuff, I listened to a lot of the new Jedi order books in the audiobook form after I'd already read them and stuff, just because at the point of that time frame, I was a part of the machine. I literally had to take the, the stack of film and put it in the package every single time. Whereas in other sheeters, you could sit down and read. So it was like, Oh man, I can't read. So then I started doing the audiobooks and I actually, I came to really enjoy them. You get really cool music in the background. You get cool sound effects. And sometimes the reader really gets into his character voices. I mean, when you get the right reader, it's a lot of fun. And I, I agree with you. Revenge of the Sith would be a, a great way to take advantage of that free trial run. 
Beyond that, on a more personal note, for those who are following the, the ongoing medical insanity, we are hoping to get some of our medical expenses back at least a little bit from this year, not the 15 grand from 2013 or so um, that is still an issue right now. But the some of the rest may be coming back. There's been a, a change to the state health benefit plan for Georgia state employees because so many people were angry over the fact that rather than having co-pays, it was co-insurance. Instead of paying like 30 bucks as a co-pay on a doctor visit, you were paying a percentage every time. So for instance, when we went for my wife's uh, uh, oscopies, the different things that she had to have done to check and see what was going on with her, whether it was cancer or not, to do the biopsies, instead of paying 45 bucks there and then a little bit of a, uh, a lab fee later, it was $700 there. Ooh. And then others later. We're still having that built up, um, still shuffling around all those different bills and whatnot, but uh, we're hoping that there's more good news on the horizon. It looks like the potential of cancer is now much, much, much lower. It seems uh, like, for instance, they're not having to send her to an oncologist now, but she's having to go to a few more specialists, ear, nose, and throat specialists and whatnot. Um, she's going through having a lot of different six or something different medications right now for a little bit until she gets down to one that she'll stay on probably for life. Um, and we are still very humbly and very thankfully taking any donations anybody wants to make to try to help us out as we're we're fighting that 15 to 20 grand or so worth of uh, of the medical bills that are hammering away at us every time we we get a little bit ahead it seems like something else turns around and smacks us uh we just had some jerk smith slam into uh my car that she drives um and there's no way in in the world we're ever going to get it fixed because at this point she uh. we can't afford it some idiot slammed into the mustang and crumpled in part of the wheel well above the wheel but you know he he drove off so it'd be uninsured coverage, and with the deductible on that car, goodbye to any of the cash that we have. Um, so it's just kind of just still kind of a very frustrating time, and we're very thankful to those who've been helping. Um, if you are still wanting to help, you can donate using PayPal, Nathan at StarWarsFanWorks.com. I know I haven't mentioned it in the last couple of shows, um, specifically how ones could help. Um, and she has her GoFundMe page uh, set up as well. Um, though that one takes out a little bit of a cut of the amount. It's just the easiest one to spread around uh, and another one that might help those who are not quite as comfortable with the idea of PayPal as a donation uh, method. But you can find links to it and such as I post updates from time to time over on the Facebook page for Star Wars Beyond the Films and my Star Wars Timeline Gold, which is facebook.com slash SW Timeline Gold, same kind of abbreviation as with Beyond the Films. But uh, things are progressing. I know there hasn't been an update very much recently, and part of that's because she's got one more doctor's appointment before we hopefully will know all that we need to know from this round of everything. Um, and that appointment's coming up here within the next week to, to two weeks or so. So um, uh, when I know something more, I will let folks know. But it is looking more optimistic than pessimistic now as far as the health, even though the financial thing is still pretty crabby. Well, we're all pulling for you guys. You know, that's uh, scary. Uh, on my end of things, uh, Kate's biopsy came back benign, um, so we had some good news. Uh, they're still treating the thyroid because the growth or whatever it was is what caused the thyroid to get out of whack. So she's dealing with that. It's kind of hard to see it as, as over because they're going to keep watching it for now. It's not being removed yet. Uh, so, I mean, I, we were looking at it like, you know, this thing's going to have to be removed because it's causing your thyroid to act up. So it's like... We don't know what's going on there, when they're going to remove it, if they're ever going to remove it. As of right now, they're playing that we're going to watch it and, and 
and C game, which seems like a lot of doctor bills to add up down the road as we go in to do the test. So I don't know, but just finding out that it was benign was just a big whoo for us, uh, you know, watching what you're going through with your wife and everything, you know, it's just, it's been scary to think, you know, my wife could be going down a similar road because, you know, the husbands are the most helpless when, you know, it's, it's the wives that are sick and ill. There's nothing we can do, but try to be supportive and, watching them go through this pain and stuff it's it's miserable to to be there and then not knowing what the options are because you're waiting on results for tests and things and you have no idea what these bills are going to be like and you know again watching what you guys went through i'm just i have an idea of the nightmare of what it could be like and i'm just i'm very thankful it's benign and and we have nothing more beyond that right now but you know i'm thanking the maker and thanking the force that's all we're having to deal with at this moment. I mean, things could always be worse, and I'm very ever-present of that. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging out with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. That's right, folks, and keep an eye out, because now that it has been announced, of course, that Season 6 of The Clone Wars will be showing up, you know, in English on Netflix starting on March 7th, uh, we are gearing up, of course, towards Rebels Roundtable, that new show that's going to focus in on Rebels uh, that, of course, is made by what amounts to most of the team from the old Republic Forces radio network with Mark added into the mix here. Um, basically, from what I understand, the plan right now is to hit... The Clone Wars, basically as a bonus season, so to speak, of Republic Forces Radio Network. As we do those, though, they'll be released through the original Republic Forces Radio Network feed and be simultaneously released through a new feed for Rebels Roundtable. And my hope, we can get everything worked out as we're recording, is to supplement that as we go along with little uh, interview bits with the individual team members that are going to be part of Rebels Roundtable, talking about things like how they originally got into uh, Star Wars, what about the Clone Wars, you know, positives, negatives, and such, and in what form does your collecting usually develop, whether it's collecting, whether it's reading, whatever it might be, and if it's collecting, what types of things. Um, we're still working out the details right now because, of course, they haven't been released in the U.S. yet. We want to see exactly how they get divided up, how are we going to do them as uh, arcs, uh, and right now there's some question as to who all is going to be involved with it, given that it is technically Republic Forces, um, but being jumped over into the other feed as well to kind of get us that crossover and hopefully bring more of the folks over who listen to Republic Forces who haven't necessarily listened to this show and bring them over into the Rebels Roundtable camp as we are gearing up for that series uh, eventually launching later this year. Uh, beyond that, of course, you can follow Rebels Roundtable, rebelsroundtable.com, facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable, or Twitter at rebelsround. 
So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan, who appears to now be a pitch guy. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the future installments of Vector will fulfill its promise nearly as well as the KOTOR piece. Or that we're suddenly going to get 150 Audible subscribers.